In his recent book, Moral Dimensions, Thomas Scanlon proposes a novel and interesting account of the phenomenon of blame. He distinguishes judgments of blameworthiness from the actions and attitudes that he takes to constitute blaming. According to Scanlon, the judgment that a person is blameworthy for an action amounts to a judgment that the action shows that person to hold attitudes that impair his or her relations with others. To blame the person is to hold the attitude towards him or her that this impairment makes appropriate. Now, if I'd had a handout or a a PowerPoint, this would have been the only thing on it, just the definition of Scanlon's account of blameworthy and blame. Uh, That seemed too paltry to merit the use of all that paper or technology, so I'll just read it one more time and hope you get it uh, sufficiently. So... uh, There are two parts. There's the judgment that a person is blameworthy for an action, which amounts to a judgment that the action shows that person to hold attitudes that impair his or her relations with others, or more specifically, his or her relations with you, the blamer. And to blame the person is to hold the attitude toward him or her that this impairment makes appropriate. In offering an account of blame that locates the activities of blaming in the context of relationships, Scanlon does us a great service. It brings to our attention and allows us to make sense of the fact that blame comes in many varieties and that there is such a thing as having or lacking adequate standing to blame. As such, it can be contrasted with a standard type of retributive view according to which blame is an impersonal reflection of an agent's moral faultiness. Still, Scanlon's interpretation of blame does not accord with my ordinary use of the term. In this paper, I sketch the beginnings of an alternative understanding of blame by way of reacting and responding to the account Scanlon proposes. As I mentioned, what Scanlon's account would have us classify as instances of blame does not fit well with my pre-theoretical usage. There are cases which would count as cases of blaming according to Scanlon's account, which I would not describe as such, and there are cases which clearly count as blame in my dialect, that do not, or at least not obviously or easily, fit Scanlon's definition. As an example of the first sort of case, consider my relationship with my editor. An embarrassingly long time ago, I signed a contract with Oxford University Press to publish a collection of my essays. All that was needed from me was a decision about the order in which the articles were to be arranged and an introduction to the volume. Still, writing an introduction is not nothing, It requires rereading a lot of my early work, thinking about how my views have changed over the years, and trying to figure out how different parts of my work fit together. In any event, I have allowed other projects and obligations to take precedence over this one, and the date by which I promised to have completed my introduction continues to recede. According to both Scanlon's use of the term and my own, it seems to me that I am blameworthy for letting so much time go by without meeting the terms of my contract. It certainly indicates something about me and my attitudes that impairs my relationships, at least my relationships with editors. The time that has elapsed since my contract promised that I would have an introduction has not gone unnoticed by Peter O'Lean, And I assume that, being the sensible professional that he is, he takes his knowledge of my unreliability into account in his other dealings with me, considering whether to offer me a contract on any other projects, for example, 
in planning publication schedules, advertising budgets, and so on. According to Scanlon's account, as I understand it, these facts are sufficient to establish that Peter Olean blames me for my tardiness. In my dialect, however, this is far from clear. There was certainly no evidence of my kind of blame in the civil and genial tone of our communications. If pressed, I assume that Peter would accept the judgment that I am blameworthy for my behavior. I certainly would if I were he. But in my dialect, his merely noticing that I am untrustworthy when I say that I will have a manuscript done by a certain date does not yet constitute that judgment. Moreover, even if he acknowledges my blameworthiness, he still might not actually blame me for my lapse. He may be the sort of person who doesn't go in much for blaming, at least not in relation to his authors. There are, in my ways of talking, ways of adjusting one's attitudes, even adjusting one's attitudes to reflect an impairment that leave the question of blame to one side. A different kind of example, which Scanlon would and I would not classify as an instance of blame, can be found in connection with Robert Harris, the cold-blooded killer Scanlon writes about in his book, following an important philosophical discussion of Harris in Gary Watson's article on responsibility and the limits of evil. Watson quotes a long passage from an article in the Los Angeles Times that depicts Harris's behavior and character in a way that makes clear that Harris is a horrible human being, nearly monstrous in his indifference to human life. No sane human being could fail to adjust his or her attitudes towards Harris in a way made appropriate by Harris's impairment. Applying Scanlon's definition of blameworthiness and blame, these are, again, enough to establish that Harris is blameworthy and, indeed, is blamed. But they are not enough in my dialect. After describing the man Harris has become by the time he has committed the brutal murders for which he was eventually executed, Watson's article provides an account of Harris's childhood and adolescence. They are also brutal and heartbreaking. Reading it, one thinks, no wonder Harris grew up to be so full of rage and hatred to his fellow man. Beyond this, reactions differ. But some people who read this, including me, are inclined to modify the attitudes their introduction, their introduction to the crime and character of Robert Harris initially inspired. That the possibility of any kind of relationship with Harris is probably permanently impaired is beyond question. That one's attitudes towards him should include distrust and defensiveness, if not also an absence of goodwill, is not in doubt. But something else is in doubt, which I would express as the question of whether one can justifiably blame him. Suspecting that one cannot, I would say that I neither blame him nor judge him to deserve blame. In addition to cases which Scanlon would, but I would not classify as cases of blame, there are, as I mentioned, cases that I would count as blaming, but that do not obviously or easily fit Scanlon's definition. As examples, one could consider any number of incidents that are part and parcel of my family life. My reaction, for example, to my daughter's repeated raiding of my closet to borrow clothes and shoes without permission or to my husband's tendency to say I'm ready to go, only then to keep me waiting while he spends an extra five minutes finding his glasses, washing his coffee cup, and getting his books together. Or consider my other daughter's resentful complaint 
that she's been trying to talk to me and her father about a problem for several days, but that we have been too focused on her sister's situation, yes, the closet-raiding sister, to give her any attention. If you heard the slammed doors and raised voices or saw the dirty looks and tight jaws that accompanied the discussion of these events, you would not think twice about whether to describe these as episodes of blame. But do they indicate that the parties involved hold attitudes that impair their relations with each other? There is a lot to say here, but let me begin with this. I have a very close family with deeply gratifying relationships which I cannot imagine having anything like their actual character in the absence of episodes like these. These are the sorts of cases I had in mind in giving this paper its title, even though I am not actually Italian. I'm Jewish, but the title Blame Jewish Style doesn't have nearly as appealing a ring to it. (laughs) In any event, this isn't the first time that someone has noticed similar patterns in Jewish and Italian families. African-Americans, Greeks, Russians, may identify as well. Scanlon's interpretation of blame, then, is different from my ordinary usage of the term. Something is missing from his account of blame that is central to mine, and something is central to his that I doubt is essential. What is missing in Scanlon's account is any fundamental connection between blame and anger, or to adopt a phrase from Marilyn Fry of righteous anger. More precisely, my ordinary use of the term associates blame with a certain kind of negative emotional attitude toward the object of blame. Resentment, indignation, and guilt, as well as righteous anger, fall within the family of these attitudes. But the mere or not-so-mere absence or withdrawal of goodwill does not. At the same time, Scanlon's interpretations of blame and judgments of blameworthiness connect blame at a basic level with an impairment of relationships. As I use the term blame, relationships may may be impaired in Scanlon's sense without anyone deserving blame. And even when my kind of blame targets an aspect of a person that does impair her personal relationships, her potential relationships, it is not clear to me that this fact is central to our understanding of the phenomenon to which I refer. The fact that I use the words blame and blameworthy differently from Scanlon, however, has limited philosophical interest in itself. Though Scanlon thinks his interpretation of blame fits our moral experience better than at least the obvious alternatives, he admits that his account will strike some as revisionist, and he is not disturbed by that. If there is to be an objection to Scanlon's account, it cannot consist merely in the complaint that it does not conform to ordinary language, much less to my particular dialect. It must be that by using, or as I might say, co-opting the term in this way, we run the risk of losing sight of another concept or category that we have reason to retain. This is the sort of position I aim to defend today. I shall argue specifically that there is a family of attitudes and activities that are picked out by blame as it occurs in my dialect, for which it is worthwhile to retain a specific term. These attitudes and activities have a potentially positive role to play in our lives, and it would be a shame to revise our conceptual scheme in a way that minimized their distinctiveness and ignored or denied their value. Moreover, the attitudes and accompanying activities I have in mind have different and more stringent justifying conditions than do some of the attitudes and responses that fall under Scanlon's interpretation of blame. 
If we fail to distinguish my sort of blame from Scanlon's, we may not appreciate or attend to these differences, and serious consequences may ensue. Finally, and related to this last point, it seems to me that the philosophical problem of free will has been fundamentally connected to the question of whether and how the distinctive set of attitudes and practices that constitute my kind of blame can be justifiable and appropriate. We cannot understand the history of the free will debate without making reference to this set of attitudes and practices, nor can we do justice to the continued discussion of the problem of free will if we fail to recognize that the intelligibility and legitimacy of this particular set of attitudes and practices is at least part of what is at stake. Let me return to the first and perhaps the main point that I wish to defend, namely that the range of attitudes and related activities that I'm used to referring to when I use the word blame is distinct from the range to which Scanlon refers and has a potentially valuable role in our lives. The range of attitudes I have in mind, as I've said, is a range that includes resentment, indignation, guilt, and righteous anger. They are emotional attitudes that involve negative feelings toward a person arising from the belief or impression that that the person has behaved badly towards oneself or to a member of a community about which one cares, and which tend to give rise to, or perhaps even include, a desire to scold or punish the person for his bad, that is, disrespectful or hurtful behavior. I shall refer to the range of attitudes I have in mind as the angry attitudes, and the kind of blame that is characterized by these attitudes as angry blame. By contrast, I shall refer to, I shall refer to Scanlon's understanding of blame as Scanlonian blame, but it would be all right for others to refer to it as blame for wusses or or wimpy blame. The, The claim that angry blame has a potentially positive role in our lives is controversial. Many people think that the angry emotions are a regrettable part of human nature and that we would be better off and better people if we could forswear these emotions entirely. For such people, The fact that Scanlonian blame allows us to justify a number of behavioral and attitudinal attitudinal patterns of response to bad people that we find it necessary to justify while avoiding any need to invoke or legitimize such emotions is a considerable attraction of his account. But, as I've already admitted, I don't see anything wrong with these emotions when they are proportional to the occasions that evoke them it seems perfectly appropriate to get angry or resentful when one is insulted, disrespected, or unjustifiably harmed. Moreover, thinking again about my relationships with members of my family and comparing them with relationships in other families in which angry attitudes and their expressions are suppressed, it's not clear to me that the blaming that goes on in my family, the angry blaming, is indicative of impaired relationships. To be fair, Scanlon never denies that angry blame can have a positive role in our lives. He does not say that resentment, indignation, and anger are never appropriate, or that blameworthy behavior and blame must indicate a permanent impairment of relationships. Surely, a defender of Scanlon might continue, when a parent contemplates getting a lock for her closet door, or a child runs out of the house screaming, I hate you, I hate you, at her parents, This reflects at least a temporary impairment in the quality of their relationship. Such episodes are indications that something must be done. 
apologies made, habits reformed, to repair the relationships that have been damaged. If, as a result of the blame and the response to it, the relationship returns to to its earlier condition or is even made stronger, this poses no challenge for Scanlon's account. Angry blame, then, according to this argument, can be understood as a species of Scanlonian blame. I'm reluctant to agree that incidents of angry blame always indicate impaired relationships, even when it is emphasized that the impairment may be only temporary. To be sure, the acts and attitudes of angry blame, taken in isolation from the possible apologies and changes that come after, tend to represent low points in the relationships in question. But there is something peculiar about the idea of assessing the quality of relationships in so moment-to-moment a way. Applying Scanlon's conception of blame to these episodes seems to require judgments to the effect that a good relationship has been impaired for a few hours and then repaired or even strengthened by the end of the day. While this is possible, it seems an odd way to think about what happens in the course of a good marriage when a spouse forgets the carton of milk that he had promised to pick up on his way home from work. I'm less interested in arguing about this point, however, than with making another Namely, that whether or not angry blame is a species of Scanlonian blame or just an overlapping category, it is importantly different from other kinds of Scanlonian blame in its value, its significance, and its conditions. Two differences in the paradigms of angry blame and other kinds of Scanlonian blame are especially worthy of attention. Remember that, according to Scanlon, the judgment that a person is blameworthy is interpreted as a judgment that the person has done something to indicate that he holds attitudes that impair his or her relations with others. Blaming the person so judged is a matter of holding attitudes towards him or her that this impairment makes appropriate. This way of characterizing blame seems necessarily to understand blame as a reaction to a perceived or imagined character flaw. Even if we blame someone explicitly for a particular act or omission, It is only because the act indicates something, one assumes something more general about the attitudes of the agent that call for, or at least make appropriate, an adjustment of attitudes towards him or her. In the examples of angry blame that I offered earlier, however, this description is misleading. Specifically, although the agents in my examples behaved in disrespectful or hurtful ways to each other, my daughter took undue liberties with my property, my husband with my time, and I failed to notice my daughter's distress when I should have been more sensitive and attentive. Still, I don't take these incidents to indicate any general lack of respect or perceptiveness, even towards each other. We are, as I've mentioned, a very close and loving family who are, on the whole, deeply considerate and respectful of each other. Still, no one is perfect, There are occasions when we are distracted or self-absorbed or succumb to temptations we ought to have resisted. On such occasions, blame, at least my kind of blame, is appropriate even if the acts for which blame is in question do not reflect robust patterns of vice. It is appropriate to get angry or resentful when someone acts disrespectfully to you, to get indignant when she acts disrespectfully to someone you care about, to feel guilty when you recognize that you have behaved disrespectfully yourself, that the act is atypical 
or not yet typical, is no excuse. I agree with Scanlon that blameworthiness, and so justifiable blame, is a response to the meaning of an act rather than to its permissibility. And that's a technical distinction he makes in the first half of this this book I'm talking about. And this implies that in a sense corresponding to that distinction, when an agent is blameworthy, it indicates something about the agent beyond the very mere fact that she performed the act she did. What it indicates about the agent's general character, however, might be simply that the agent is imperfectly virtuous. If this constitutes an impaired relationship, it can only be by contrast with the relationships of people who are perfectly virtuous. Pace Aristotle, however, there seem to me several reasons for not judging our relationships by reference to this ideal. Strictly speaking, Scanlon is not committed to the claim that every blameworthy act reflects a vice or bad character. But it is hard not to think of cases that reflect a bad character as at least paradigmatic of Scanlonian blameworthiness and blame. The second way in which paradigms of Scanlonian blame differs from the cases of angry blame I have in mind is at least indirectly connected to this first way. As we've seen, Scanlon understands blame as an adjustment in attitudes towards the object of blame that appropriately reflects the impairment that the person blamed has indicated by his behavior. When Scanlon addresses the question of what adjustments are appropriate, his suggestions all involve forms of withdrawal. Some appropriate forms of withdrawal are physical and behavioral. One can refuse to make agreements with that person or to enter into other specific relations that involve trust and reliance. Others are emotional. It can be appropriate not to take pleasure in that person's successes and not to hope that things go well for him. As responses to a person's perceived or imagined morally defective character, these reactions make perfect sense. If a person reveals himself to be an unscrupulous liar, a callous egoist, much less a sadist or sociopath, it makes sense to back away. But in the cases of angry blame I described, in which the blameworthy act may not indicate a robust or even general moral character flaw, these attitudes may not be appropriate. In any case, the metaphor of withdrawal is not always apt for capturing the kind of blame I have in mind. The angry emotions do not seem to me to be especially associated with the disposition to withdraw from the object of the emotion. Rather than get some distance between you and the person you're angry with, you might as likely want to get in his face. You may want him to see your anger and to feel your pain. You may want to scold him. You probably want him to apologize. And although the angry emotions and attitudes do seem to me conceptually tied to a disposition to punish, and therefore with a willingness to make the object of of blame suffer in a particular way, it would be a serious mistake to identify this with a general withdrawal of goodwill. Even in the midst of my fury at my daughter's repeated raids of my closet, there was never a moment when I wanted harm to come to her or when I was indifferent to her well-being. If I wanted her to suffer, it was in a specific way with a specific kind of significance. I may have wanted her to experience the painful feelings of guilt and remorse. I never wanted her to break her leg or even scratch her knee. In my dialect, at least some cases of what I have taken to be paradigms of Scanlonian blame would not be considered blame at all. 
the recognition that someone is constitutionally cruel or narcissistic or a pathological liar engenders what P.F. Strawson called the objective attitude, an attitude which contrasts with the reactive attitudes, including the angry emotions, in which blame, that is, angry blame, has its home. More important than differences in vocabulary, though, is the difference, as I want to argue, between the sets of attitudes and associated activities and judgments that are picked out by Scanlonian blame and by angry blame, respectively. These patterns of thought, feeling, and practice have overlapping but different roles in our lives. They have different value and different conditions of justifiability. There is a clear place in our lives for the judgments and attitudes that I take to be paradigmatic of Scanlonian blame. Some people have hardened hearts and vicious characters, and it makes sense to adjust our attitudes towards them accordingly, to protect ourselves both emotionally and physically, if nothing else. I've tried to suggest that there is also a place for the range of judgments and attitudes that I have, that I have described as angry, as angry blame, in which people get hot and bothered and want to scold and punish and judge it appropriate that they do so. Getting angry and expressing it and demanding a response may bring people together and make them closer rather than pushing them away. In part, this is because such behavior encourages apology and remorse more than other shifts of attitude that reflect an impairment in relationships. In part, it is because in revealing one's anger or resentment or indignation to a person, one shows that one regards the person as a person and as a member or potential member of one's community. Getting angry, as opposed to withdrawing one's trust, shows that one does not regard the person exclusively with the objective attitude. In any event, liability to feel angry emotions and to form angry attitudes appears to be an inevitable feature of allowing oneself to be not just physically but emotionally vulnerable to other people. If one thinks that relationships characterized by such vulnerability play a distinctively valuable role in our lives, then one must at least recognize the angry emotions and attitudes as necessary elements of a package that is desirable overall. It may be noted, however, that all the examples I have used to make my case for angry blame concern relatively trivial acts by reasonably decent people in the context of fairly intimate relationships. Welcome to my world. Even if the liability to angry blame may appear to have an acceptable place in these contexts, we all know how dangerous such blame can be in other circumstances. People in intimate relationships, even reasonably decent people, offend or hurt each other not only in trivial ways, but in major ones too. They betray each other, they steal from each other, they assault and even kill each other. And then there are all the small and large ways in which acquaintances and complete strangers hurt each other due to greed, negligence, cowardice, cruelty, and more. As the hurt and offense gets larger, so does the level of anger, and the disposition to punish that is part of that anger has a tendency to get out of control. Moreover, when serious crimes are committed against us by strangers, we may jump to conclusions and allow our immediate angry emotions to express themselves without understanding what went on in the perpetrator's mind or what train of events led up to the harmful or offensive action. Tales of vengeance gone wild are abundant and familiar, 
They at least partly explain why many people greet an account of blame that completely bypasses any justification of anger and its expression with relief. The dangers associated with the angry emotions make it rational to be anxious about an account of blame that legitimates these emotions and their expression. But we cannot so much as ask whether they are legitimate if we don't mark them out as distinct from other emotions and attitudes and patterns of behavior that respond to perceived wrongdoing in different ways. And when we do distinguish angry blame from these other responses, we can ask not only whether such blame is ever legitimate, but also when and under what conditions it is appropriate and appropriately expressed. One proposal worth considering would restrict the appropriateness of angry blame, or at least to its physical expression, to private contexts of interpersonal relationships and advocate that in public contexts, and especially in connection with the criminal justice system, we assess and revise our practices exclusively with the more dispassionate model Scanlonian blame brings to mind. This is not the only proposal worth considering, however. Restorative justice approaches to criminal wrongdoing, currently gaining influence in Australia and New Zealand, offer a model of criminal sentencing that brings criminals and their victims together, along with other members of the community, to participate in the determination of how the offender can make up for the harm he or she has done. Studies suggest that programs based on this model have lower rates of recidivism than traditional court procedures and yield greater satisfaction for both victims and offenders. The focus on relationships, on the relationships created and damaged in the commission of a crime, that distinguishes the restorative justice model of sentencing from more traditional procedures resonates well with Scanlon's interpretation of blame as well as with mine. This brings out a contrast between both our views of blame on the one hand and a standard retributive conception on the other, according to which blame involves the impersonal aim of matching an appropriate level of punitive suffering to a level of moral fault. But while Scanlon's conception of blame is at least compatible with a static relationship between the subject and object of blame, adjusting one's attitudes to someone in a way that reflects an impaired relationship may simply, according to Scanlon, be a matter of writing him off or cutting him dead, restorative justice depends on a specifically dynamic interaction. As at least some of the advocates of restorative justice agree, the most natural way to understand how it works involves recognizing benefits to the expression of angry emotions and attitudes. The victims are given an opportunity to show their anger and hurt to the offender. The offender has the chance to acknowledge the victim's pain, to apologize, and to make amends. In other words, restorative justice may be understood to address crime in a way that encourages victims to express and work through their anger, rather than to separate the criminal from the victim and her community so as to bypass their anger altogether. So far, I've defended the distinctness of the category of angry blame on two broad grounds. First, I pointed out that the word blame in my dialect conforms more closely to angry blame than to Scanlonian blame. If, as I suspect, my dialect is not idiosyncratic, there may be considerations having to do with conformity to ordinary language that support identifying blame with angry blame. Second, I have argued that whatever words we want to use for it, 
the range of emotions, attitudes, and behavioral expressions that I have called angry blame has a distinctive and positive role to play in our relationships and our lives. The value of angry blame and its inseparability from valuable forms of relationship may be understood as a kind of justification, not only for the distinctiveness of the concept, but for its realization in our emotional lives. Until now, however, I've kept in the background another feature of angry blame that is arguably seriously problematic. For even if positive effects of feeling resentment, indignation, guilt, and anger provide a kind of justification for these feelings, there is another, more internal kind of justification that these feelings and their expressions may be thought to require that remains in doubt. Specifically, the conditions of freedom required for the justifiability of angry blame appear to be different and stronger than the conditions necessary for Scanlonian blame. And it is famously a matter of controversy when, if ever, these conditions are met. As Scanlon points out, justified blame is commonly thought to require that the object of blame had an, op- had an adequate opportunity to avoid the act or character trait for which blaming him is being contemplated. If you learn that a person who hurt you could not help but have done so, that seems to be a reason to withdraw the blame you might initially have had for him. If he could not help it, it seems unfair or inappropriate to blame him. If we look beyond these words for a more specific explanation of the agent's hurtful behavior, we may discover that we had misinterpreted the act. You thought he had hurt you intentionally, perhaps, but you discovered that he was pushed or hypnotized or that he was non-culpably unaware that you were sensitive in the particular respect that made his behavior to you hurtful. In such cases, Scanlon would agree he couldn't help it is a reason to withdraw blame, but this is not because the agent lacked an adequate opportunity to avoid the action. Rather, in these cases, the reasons why the agent couldn't help it reveal that the behavior had a different meaning than what one originally surmised. It is not an expression of ill will or indifference, for example, and so it does not, as one had thought, indicate anything about the agent that that impairs his relationship to you. Other stories, which would equally support describing the agent's behavior as something he couldn't help, may not have implications that call for a withdrawal of Scanlonian blame, however. Perhaps he did hurt you intentionally, but it is because, due to his abuse as a child, he is full of rage he cannot control. He is taking anger management classes, but so far he has met with little success. Or perhaps he knowingly made insulting remarks about gay men, but given the way he was brought up and the limited community to which he has been exposed, one could not have expected him to be able to appreciate how objectionable and unjust his views and their expression are. As Scanlon might admit, such backstories may show that the agent in question lacked the opportunity to avoid being hurtful or offensive in the way the specific act revealed. But this doesn't undermine one's right or one's reasons for adjusting one's attitudes toward him in a way that constitutes Scanlonian blame. A disposition to be overcome with rage certainly impairs relationships, as does prejudice against homosexuals. And no one can complain if your attitudes take this impairment into account. If, on the other hand, blame is seen as a sanction, Scanlon writes, the requirement of fair opportunities to avoid may seem to apply. 
Although understanding blame in terms of angry attitudes and emotions is not quite the same as seeing blame as a sanction, these conceptions are related. In any event, it seems to me that the requirement of fair opportunity to avoid applies to the justification of angry attitudes and emotions as it does to the justification of sanctions. In other words, it seems to me a condition of angry blame toward a person that the person toward whom blame is being considered had adequate opportunity to avoid being its object. The problem of free will may be interpreted in large part as a problem about the relevant sense of he can't help it is, which disqualifies a person from angry blame. Or perhaps more helpfully, we may think of the problem as one that concerns what constitutes an adequate opportunity to avoid the behavior or character for which one is inclined to angrily blame someone. Most libertarians seem to believe that only beings with a distinct metaphysical status, incompatible with any sort of determinism, can ever have a relevantly adequate opportunity to avoid anything. I tend to think that the condition is less metaphysically demanding. It seems to me, for example, that one can make the relevant distinction between people who can control their anger and those who cannot within the facts as we know them, to use P.F. Strassen's phrase, and independently of the truth or falsity of any metaphysical thesis of determinism. But defending my views on free will is happily beyond the scope of this paper. The important point in this context is that whereas the justification of Scanlonian blame need not deal with the problem of free will, a justification of angry blame must confront it. And though Scanlon was not seeking an interpretation of blame that would avoid the problem of free will and determinism when developing his view, the fact that his account does avoid it may seem to him, as well as others, as a considerable fringe benefit. Many people, after all, are sick to death of the free will problem, and many are convinced that the problem is unsolvable. They may think that angry blame requires a metaphysical status we simply don't have, or perhaps even worse, that angry blame requires a kind of agency that is ultimately incoherent or self-contradictory. If one is convinced that, due to considerations such as these, angry blame is never justifiable, one might be attracted to the idea that we adopt a revisionist understanding of blame. I view things differently. Although I would agree with Scanlon and defenders of a Scanlonian interpretation of blame, that it is enormously valuable to recognize a category of attitudes and behaviors one may have towards people who act badly that do not require for their justification that the people in question had the opportunity to avoid their bad tendencies, I would prefer that we not use the word blame to refer to this category. Some people, perhaps many or even most people, do not use the word blame as Scanlon does. If they did, it would be hard to see why anyone ever thought that blame might be incompatible with determinism. We cannot, therefore, so much as understand that very large part of the free will problem that is concerned with moral responsibility and blame if we do not recognize that a kind of blame different from Scanlonian blame was thought to be at stake. This in itself seems to me a reason to find a different term for Scanlonian blame. Further, even if those pessimists who think that angry blame is never justified and that we should cease to be philosophically engaged by the problem of free will are right, the adoption of a revisionist interpretation of blame would be premature. 
for justifiable or not, the attitudes and practices that comprise angry blame are out there, and we need a term, a concept, to pick them out, if only to question their value and their justifiability. In the last section of of Scanlon's chapter on blame, he reviews what he has done, helpfully distinguishing the analytic and normative claims he has made from the interpretive ones. Under the first category, he reminds us that he has argued that our emotional and behavioral repertoire contains a type of moral response to a person's behavior that involves judging the behavior to indicate something about the person in virtue of which his or her relationship to others are impaired and adjusting one's attitudes towards the agent in a way that reflects the impairment. His suggestion that we identify such judgments and attitude adjustments with blameworthiness and blame, respectively, constitute the second and interpretive part of his project. He then lists three ways in which he recognizes that his account of blame may seem to be revisionary and concludes with the hope that those who are unsatisfied present alternative accounts with which his can be compared. If I've been clear in my remarks, it will be understood that I completely accept and applaud Scanlon's analytic and normative claims. The recognition of the categories of judgment and of the attitudinal responses associated with it that I have called Scanlonian blame is important and valuable, capturing well a kind of judgment and response we often have and should have to others in both private and public contexts. My objections, then, have been solely to Scanlon's interpretive claims, to his suggestions that we identify the judgments and attitudes he has pointed out to us, respectively with blameworthiness and with blame. Even here, I hope it is clear that my concern is not essentially a matter of vocabulary. The set of attitudes that Scanlon wants to identify with blame is an important one, but so, I've argued, is the set of attitudes that I have referred to as angry blame. Still, it may be helpful in furthering discussion of these issues if I respond to Scanlon's plea by sketching more explicitly the alternative interpretation of blame that my remarks about angry blame seem to reflect and comparing that interpretation with Scanlon's in respects to the features he highlights in the final section of his book. Obviously, the angry emotions and attitudes are at the center of my interpretation. The paradigm of blame, according to this interpretation, involves an angry feeling or attitude, such as righteous anger, resentment, indignation, or guilt, that one person has or experiences toward another in connection with something hurtful, or insulting that the latter is perceived or imagined to have done toward the former or someone in her community, and that disposes the blamer to scold or punish the person whom she blames. But while this kind of case strikes me as paradigmatic of blame, it seems to me more useful, as well as more in accord with ordinary language, to admit cases of blaming in which no such angry emotion or attitude is present. So the account must be somewhat more complex than one might initially suppose. Relying on the paradigm of blame, in which blame involves the holding of an angry attitude towards someone who is perceived to have committed a relevant offense, one may construe the judgment of blameworthiness as the judgment that a person is such as to deserve being the object of such an attitude. Blaming someone, I would propose, would involve either holding one of the angry attitudes towards him or judging him to be deserving of such an attitude. Commonly, but not necessarily, blaming also includes behaving 
behaving towards the object of blame in ways that characteristically express the angry attitudes and that are thought to be justified when the attitudes themselves are justified. Obviously, this sketch of an alternative interpretation of blame is very rough. A more precise account would require a more thorough understanding and characterization of the angry emotions and of the types of behavior that characteristically express them, as well of the, as of the kinds of perceived or imagined actions that intelligibly and justifiably evoke them. Even in this crude form, however, it may be instructive to notice how this interpretation of blame compares to Scanlon's account with respect to the three ways Scanlon notices his, his account may be revisionary. First, Scanlon notes his account understands blame as a response to a view about a person's attitudes, and that as such, it minimizes the importance of the fact that blame is always, or at least usually, for some action. My interpretation preserves the more customary emphasis on action. Anger and resentment are typically responsible to responses to something a person does or fails to do, not to what a person is. As I mentioned earlier in the paper, it strikes me as a virtue of this account that it helps us notice and understand that one may justly get angry or resent or blame a person for something the person does, even if she is, on the whole, a nice and reasonable human being. Second, Scanlon writes that it might be held that the appropriateness of blame does not vary in the way he suggests according to the relation between the agent and the person who's doing the blaming. Rather, it might be claimed that to blame someone is to accept a negative judgment about that person's character or moral record, a judgment that anyone can make in the same way. If an account is considered revisionist because it presents the appropriateness of different types of blame as variable, however, I am all on the side of revision. With Scanlon, I take it to be a fact about the character of our moral experience that blame is variable, and appropriately so, according to the way the relationships between the blaming and the blamed parties are affected by the behavior to which the blaming is a response. Third, and finally, Scanlon notes that according to his interpretation of blame, people can be blamed for things that are not under their control. Since, as he says, many people seem to take it as an obvious truth that blame presupposes some kind of freedom, this feature of his interpretation is apt especially to give rise to charges of revisionism. Unlike Scanlonian blame, the justification of anger, resentment, and indignation seems to me to include a condition of freedom of the kind that is frequently presupposed as a requirement of justifiable blame. If it seems this way to others, too, my account of blame will thus conform to this presupposition, and so it will not be seen as revisionary. I must admit, however, that I have not offered any account of why freedom is a condition of anger and resentment. Indeed, I'm not even sure what such an account would look like. Comparing Scanlon's interpreta interpretation of blame with the sketch I have offered of angry blame, sorry, Comparing Scanlon with the sketch I've offered angry blame with respect to the features that Scanlon himself brings out as possible reasons for finding his account revisionary, angry blame appears to conform more closely to our customary understanding of the term. But, as I mentioned earlier, I'm not especially interested in defending linguistic conservatism, much less linguistic chauvinism. My concern is not essentially a matter of vocabulary. 
My worry is rather that if we use blameworthiness and blame, as Scanlon proposes, we will fail to recognize and appreciate the distinctiveness of that latter set and the importance of the issues that essentially concern it. It is telling that in listing reasons why some people might find his account revisionary, Scanlon does not even mention the consideration that his account of blame makes no essential reference and gives no central place to attitudes like anger, resentment, and indignation. Asking myself how Scanlon could have overlooked this point, I can only surmise that the majority of his friends and neighbors are Presbyterian. (laughs) Tolstoy famously wrote that happy families are all alike. Every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. It's a great line, but reading Scanlon's discussion of blame makes me suspect that Tolstoy was mistaken. In some happy families, people may treat each other with unfailing respect and consideration, or when they do not, they may patiently correct each other or adjust their attitudes to each other with a sanguine temperament. In some happy families, though, people get angry. They raise voices, they fight, they cry, and then they apologize, they kiss, and make up. The spirit of multiculturalism calls on us to celebrate this diversity. I just want to make sure that we have a similarly diverse repertoire of concepts to match. I'm going to let Susan field her own questions, but since this is a somewhat diverse group, I'd appreciate it if you'd identify yourself when you ask your question.
angry at my father. And I'm angry at my father because I'm a selfish person. And he's done something totally reasonable, but it's denied me some good night of anger. Then it's totally reasonable for him to be angry in response. Because, look, I'm making a big fuss over, but I'm just making a big fuss because I'm a selfish person. But now, if he's angry at me, my epistemic error ramifies, right? Because I think I was just in the first place. So if he's angry at me, he's making an unjust attack on me, so it's reasonable for me to get more angry. But now it's reasonable for him to get This is a disaster waiting to happen. But we all know how in healthy families and in healthy um, disputes between neighbors in Bosnia, um, we back down out of that situation. We, right, somebody just sucks it up and produces a non-angry response. It seems like the very ability for us to have any amount of anger in our lives successfully without kind of wrecking the edifice of modern society is that we have mechanisms for diffusing anger. So it might still be true that there's a role for a modest amount of angry blame in people's lives. It might also be true that it's kind of necessary because we're still animals, even human animals, and we kind of have certain animal expectations from one another and certain animal needs to express ourselves and so on. And there won't be any getting rid of those as long as we're still human beings uh, or super awesome Buddhist monks. Um, but, uh, but probably we'll be stuck with them. But nonetheless, I wanted to really We'll be emphasize. stuck with, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. What are we stuck with? Super awesome Buddhist monks. No, no, oh, you said we'll be stuck with, right. Oh, sorry. Since we'll we're not the super awesome angry blame. And we'll be stuck with giving angry blame an important role in our lives. Right. Uh, but I really wanted to emphasize how much I think that's only possible because we have so many techniques for diffusing even just anger and displacing it with other things. So basically, I agree with your main point. I, a, absolutely, angry, especially unjustified angry blame. Especially, there is the common and terrible thing of it escalating, getting out of hand. That's all right. Um, when you said, well, we, we're probably stuck with it, that's going in the opposite. I mean, I was thinking, look, it's good that we have angry blame. It has to be, what I wanted to agree with is, you know, there are limits to the appropriate expression of it, the appropriate degree of it. I don't think to say we're stuck with it is to say it's bad that we have it, but I don't think it's bad that we have it. It's bad that it gets out of, that we, it would be bad if we couldn't diffuse it or, or control it within its appropriate proportions, but not that we have them at all. So that, so there, there might be. Even though you said, "Look, I don't want to just, I'm just try to make a, make it a more modest proposal." When you revealed at the end, we're stuck with them. It seems to me you're actually revealing a wish that we could do without them altogether, which I think would be not a good thing. That said, to go back to what I take to be your main point. Um, Two, I, I, I agree with it, but I wanted to make two comments um, about not taking it too far. One is, when it's justified, when I, I blame you justly, then the appropriate reaction for you is to apologize, to feel remorse, to try to make it up for me. That is not diffusing blame. That is accepting blame and doing what is 
the appropriate, responding appropriately. So that, though it's true there are these dangerous cases, there's also that other case, which I think is a very important one to leave in our repertoire of interactions. The other point I wanted to make was that though I, for better or for worse, used anger both as the central initial example and as the title for this range of attitudes, resentment, indignation, and guilt are all equally examples of the angry emotions. And it may be that had I not used the word anger, this thought wouldn't have been as central to you. I mean, in fact, in my ordinary life, the way I express anger is mostly by yelling. Now, you know, people, it's not really aimed at hurting in any way beyond that. It's really just making people feel, look what, you know, how I feel, that I feel I've been wronged or treated badly or disrespected or that someone else I know has been treated. And it's quite a common thing to happen. So the, you know, throw the chair at the wall instead of your husband, right, that would be, right, but that's in fact, I mean, it's not diffusing it when I yell it. That's expressing it. And that's, so there are those cases. But also when we talk about resentment or indignation, the tendency for that to get out of hand, well, there are those tendencies. But it might not have been so obvious the thing to worry about when you sort of step back and see the whole range of that. So, yes. Scanlonian blindness, as you describe it, it doesn't have anything whatever to do with retaliation or punishment. Right. Whereas angry blind can. But you mention it ever so slightly. You mention it just a few times. And it seems to me that the connection between blind, angry blind, or any kind of blindness, punishment or retaliation or vengeance is thicker than either of you make it out to be. When you blame somebody, you, especially if you're angry, it's angry blind, you think they did something wrong. And you may just yell at them. But there are all sorts of lightweight forms of retaliation that are expressed when one blames somebody. For example, people who talk about vengeance and retaliation don't think of these little cases or not like that. It's very common that when you blame somebody, you either snub them or not invite them to the party or leave them out there, not call on them, and countless other things. And that, I think, even your version, your account, doesn't connect enough between angry blind and various kinds of retribution. So that's also certainly well worth emphasizing. That is the connection. So it's true. I don't talk about it very much. What I do say is it may be conceptually part of what it is to feel these angry emotions that it includes a desire to scold or punish and that it certainly is accompanied by that disposition. 
And um, and I don't talk about it because I didn't want to discuss justification of punishment, but it's absolutely right that it is very closely connected, I think, you know, at the core to blame, that it comes with a, des- uh, um, a desire to punish or a tendency to punish. Um, one thing about some of the examples you gave that make it um, a little problematic in distinguishing my account from Scanlon's is that some of these things, like not inviting them to the party, can be cast as, I'm doing this to punish you. I'm doing this you know, so that you will recognize that as, a, um, as an angry response. But it can also be, and I mean, I think that's part of Scanlon's point, to say, look, you don't have to invite somebody to a party when he treats you badly. You, but that's not because you're, you're not trying to hurt him. You're just doing what is within your rights, which is avoiding his company for your sake or something. And so a lot of these cases of snubbing or walking away or divorcing, they could be forms of, uh, they could be expressions of blame, forms of punishment, or they could be, uh, well, that is forms of my kind of blame, right? Or they could be something else, which would still be forms of his kind of blame, and that that might be one of the things that makes his kind of a plausible candidate for the word blame, even that you know we, I think for most of us, these things are all mixed up. By the way, I'm sorry, I forgot to identify myself. I'm Andy Elton, Christ, America's member of the philosophy department. You will be blamed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're forgiven. Oh, I didn't really want to identify myself, but I uh, think we're uh, off. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, uh, uh, I'm full of angry blame, uh, so I consider myself kind of an expert on this. And, and I was just wondering, I'm looking at it. It seems to me that, like, I mean, from my sense of what was going on, that uh, you wanted to associate with the Scanlonian view, the idea that, well, part of blaming involves thinking that uh, there's some kind of damage to the relationship or some kind of problem there, whereas in the kind of blame Italian style, you, um, you know, it can be all healthy and there's no sense that there's some kind of problem. Whereas when I think angry blame, I'm like always thinking, yeah, uh, I have this kind of anger, and so Scanlon's wrong to ignore this, right? Uh, but then I also think, uh, it's, uh, well, gee, there's something wrong with this person, right? I mean, Who's angry or, uh, or uh, the person you're blaming? The person I'm blaming. I'm obviously some kind of character flaw. And, oh. and but see, but then I never think, uh, you know, um, I, I don't go so far as to think, you know, to take on the objective sense and think, oh, they need to be I just think, you know, look, they're just being disrespectful and they're just kind of, they have a problem, uh, they have some issues they have to work out, and yeah, I'm going to be angry with this person. I feel it and I can direct it at them, you know, it's you know, better for me not to. But so I, it, it seems natural for me to think that the kind of angry blame easily goes over to kind of assessing the character flaws of the object of uh, your attitude. Am I making a mistake here? Or, well, or is it that I just have a different notion of blame that I'm working with? Um, now, I'm guessing it's the same notion. Well, I don't know whether... We might have different um, views about what's justified blame. Um, so, uh, so, just as an autobiographical fact about my own judgments and when I withdraw them and so on... 
seems to me, first of all, there are plenty of cases where I blame someone for doing something wrong when I realize it's not that you're a bad person or have a character flaw. Just this time you did something you shouldn't have done. It's something that people with character flaws do regularly, but we, all, we do these things even when we don't have character flaws. I mean, we have the flaw of being imper- less than perfect. So that's one case where anger and punishment and all that is appropriate, even if it's not indicative of what I would call a character flaw. Um, and then, on the other hand, when perhaps there are repeated um, wrongs and you, you're angry at the person and they have the character flaw, then, as an autobiographical comment, once I start seeing it as a character flaw, my own tendency is to, is to move into a Scanlonian mode where I don't, the anger goes away and I do take the objective. The objective attitude doesn't require the belief of behavior to belong in institutions. It just means I'm not going to keep my, make, be emotionally vulnerable to this person in the way that, that, uh, you know, that I am with people who I think are responsive to reasons and feelings. And, you know, if I think, well, this, is, this person just has a, you know, doesn't know how to be a friend, or this person doesn't know how to tell the truth, you know, truth, then I'll just um, back away and not be angry anymore, but just, walk, you know, steer, steer around this person. Then there's the... Case, but there are cases in which a person has a character flaw and you continue to be angry and you continue to hold them responsible for it because you think they could change. They should know better. They do know better. They're just, they, you know, I mean, this, this is a very the trivial case of my husband saying, all right, I'm ready to go, feeling like I have to get up right this minute and turn off the computer. And now I'm standing there pretending. He does it all the time and he's heard this paper. He should, you know, what does it take? He's not changing, but I don't think it's because he can't change. I think I hold him responsible every time. It is we can call it a character flaw because it's regular, but so anger is compatible with with it being reflective of character flaw. But I think the anger is for each each time he does it, rather than for the flaw. I mean, I'm not angry at him for having a flaw. I'm angry at him for keeping me waiting. Um, you said a lot about how your view on, on what it is to blame is different from Scanlon's view. When you start the paper, you mentioned that Scanlon defines what it is to blame worthy um, differently from what it is to blame. And I wondered if maybe some of your differences might also stem on fundamental differences of what it is to be blame worthy, even independently of metaphysical commitments. Because when you were talking about the particular transgressions that you would blame, you often use the word respect. This person has disrespected me, and it's got this kind of normative feeling of it's not that they've severed a relationship with disobeying fundamentally normatively wrong. Mm-hmm. And I wondered if you might want to talk a little bit about what this means with you know impairing a relationship with other people. Because I think intuitively, there are lots of cases where somebody holds an attitude towards somebody that impairs their relationship with that person, mm-hmm. and it's not blameworthy. It might, in fact, be required. And in fact, I think blaming might be one of those instances. I mean, I think when you blame somebody, you might run the risk of impairing your relationship with them. But maybe your blame is justified. And so I've always wondered if Stanley's view is just circular and, and you know, 
inherently incoherent because, I mean, if you think of something like a battered wife, you know, and let's say one day she, she blames her husband and says, no, you can't do this, you disrespected me, and I'm going to divorce you and move out and yada, yada, yada. Mm-hmm. Um, that impairs their relationship. He might be saying, no, please, let's get back together, let's fix things. That impairs the relationship, but I think she's doing the right thing. I think her blame is justified. I think it has more to do with the fact that he disrespected somebody he shouldn't and not about this idea that all relationships should be preserved and, and, and it's all about impairing relationships. So I was wondering if maybe there was something more fundamental about what it is to be blameworthy that you disagree with that carries through with your disagreement of what it is to blame. Um, I, well, it, it's a nice suggestion. I don't think that's actually going on. I, okay. I mean, it would, it would take us too far into, you know, the details of Scanlon's view, which I'm not expecting everyone to have read. And um, But it was, but he has this idea of the moral relationship, which he thinks is the default position we are all in with respect to each other. And when he's talking about impairing relationships, it's an a normatively defined quality of relationship that he's talking about. So in the case of uh, a, an abusive relationship, when the spouse moves out, though there's an ordinary way of speaking in which that's impairing the relationship, uh, I don't actually know that, by, that Scanlon would regard that as an impairment of a relationship. He'd say the relationship is impaired before we even talk about whether to move out. It's I mean, and that um, and that ending uh, cohabitation or um, wouldn't be an impairment of the relationship in his sense necessarily. And so I actually think the, the ways in which he thinks relationships are impaired are pretty closely related to things that, in his sense, would be regarded as wrong, yeah, or disrespectful. But isn't it already embedding this a notion of blameworthiness in your definition of blameworthiness? That that you're blameworthy, you know, you're deserving blame if you do something blameworthy, if you do something wrong. Um. Well, he has a definition of what it is to do something wrong that doesn't ever refer to blame. So he, I mean, that's whole other book, right? So it's like you do something wrong if you do one of these things and then you do, so th- then we can say in general for, for kind of your our ordinary relationships to strangers, anytime you do something wrong, other things being equal, you're blameworthy. But And then what's interesting about his account there and this is really interesting and I think positive is that his account brings out how it's not as if it, is that whether whether it's appropriate for me to judge you blameworthy depends on whether you do something that impairs our relationship. I, I shouldn't just stand there and judge, blame you for things that have nothing to do with me. Now, a lot of things will have something to do with me, but that, but but it is connected. He's sort of embedding this in the fact that we're all related to each other. And then there's the further fact, which his account I think can handle well, which is. Within specific relationships, intimate relationships, teacher-student relationships, there are expectations within those relationships. There are norms of these individual relationships that aren't moral norms that you would say involve wrongdoing. If I, um, you know, if I don't, uh, you know, if a student hands me a, a chapter of 
the dissertation she's working on and I don't get it back for six weeks, I don't, we can argue about whether that's morally wrong. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't, but it might be something that appropriately justifies blame. The student might appropriately blame me because I've impaired my relationship whether or not it's morally wrong. So I actually think it's, his account is flexible in that way, but I don't, I don't think we dis disagree on that. Um, I'm Mark Sloan. I teach at the law school. So, um, a couple of the comments have, in reaction to the, to the paper, I guess I'm going to start with the first thing. I found it to be a really, um, sort of your, your idea that there's this um, more muscular, less different form of way that we can embrace. But, but partly, sort of, in reaction to the partly in reaction to the comments, uh, I was given to think about um, this. Story uh, that appeared in the Washington Post a while ago about Virginia's uh, mandatory arrest policy in domestic violence cases, um, in, in which uh, thrown keys, thrown jars of peanut butter actually wind up in this dynamic, wind up, wind up being uh, the basis for uh, arrest and uh, incarceration. So, part of what that begins to tell me is that. Aside from sort of the way that the story is set up as a way to argue against mandatory arrest policies and to complain about the domestic violence regime with its own problematic, part of what that tells me is that how we begin to imagine some of these problems scaling up from intimate, non-legal questions into the apparatus of the state can get really complicated. Um, and, and, and then I begin to think about sort of other questions of scale and state-state relations sort of out of the context of sort of the small intimate relationship. So as much of a relief as I experienced the notion of having some room for a kind of righteous indignation at the sort of very local, very sort of personal level, I'm not sure sort of what happens when you imagine the, the ideas taking root and growing. And I just, I really just want to sort of say that and then invite some speculation on, on your part of some reaction. Uh, good. Well, it, it's related to the, the first comment. It, it's about the um, about the typical reactions, the, the typical forms of expression we have of angry blame. Um, I mean, it's very culturally relative. What are and subculturally relative and familiar, and you know, even within families, how angry blame is expressed and when it's expressed by physically you know trying to hurt the person you're blaming that's that quickly escalates and gets very bad uh, you know one of my probably less politically correct uh, even less politically correct feelings I have sometimes but you know this is don't you know don't quote me on it is um you know, that a certain amount of physical expression of anger, uh, that we overreact to some of that. I mean, there are lots of cultures in which there are mild physical expressions of anger that I think, look, this is just, this is the way they work things out. Um, but from a political standpoint, that's, a, you know, it's very difficult to know how to, uh, how to judge those things. I, you know, I just... Um, that's a sort of a background thought that it's you know it's very hard to to deal with you know cases and cases. On the other hand, 
the best thing to do would be to say, look, is to try to think about the various ways in which anger can be expressed and can even involve punishing and scolding that aren't harmful in a way that are you know permanently damaging or even impermanently damaging. I mean, the, the, to me, what, what you want when you're angry and resentful and indignation is to get the person both to appreciate um, that he's wronged you or or someone, um, and to feel guilty and remorseful. That's what you want. You want, which is painful, right? But it's not, but an appropriate kind of pain, not not even a regrettable kind. And so the question is, how can we express those, and how can we train ourselves and our, uh, you know, our society to express those in ways that are not as damaging as? I guess I was trying to, to invite a little bit of comment about the, the dangers of authorizing righteous indignation when it's coming from the state, right? Ah. The so, so it, you mean the danger of the state, of the law that says, you know, that goes in, right. Yes, is that, is it, are you yeah, going to speak um, up on um, uh, uh, Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, good, fine. So I, <laughs> I actually, um, I work in the field of alternative resolution. So there are really interesting ways in which blame, including restorative justice, sort of flows into that. Um, but one of the early sort of arguments for blame was against conciliation processes. And the claim was, well, what if um, blaming has a really sort of transformative effect on the self? If we want to make legal subjects, we might be blaming for rights claiming. Right? And what if, oh, blaming is not proportionately distributed throughout society, women blame less than men, or whatever it is. Um, and we're really worried that in order to have people use the legal system, legal state-supported processes that encourage blame are actually important um, for change. That, that might be one sort of pro-state blaming function. The other piece, though, and I think this is sort of what you were saying, in the restorative justice movement, um, there's sort of the, the discourse to justify blame sort of has everything to do with its effect on the other person, right? So it's not blaming and claiming anymore, now it's blaming and shaming. And it's good blame if it has a transformative effect, right, promotes healing. Okay. And then I, I think there's a lot of uncomfortableness over blame that just is angry and that doesn't sort of affect the offender, it doesn't affect the other. Can I Eric Hobsbawm, on your point, has a great small article called Rules of Violence where he talks about pre-legal sort of social conventions for managing aggression and anger of various kinds and suggests that this, in fact, is, would be more socially productive. Um, but I think on this uh, point, we need to introduce the example of the Episcopalian family. Uh, so Episcopalians are Presbyterians who pretend to be Italian. And what that means, <laughs> I know. Uh, and what that means, and where I also come to this uh, as a folklorist so that I endorse your use of common language, uh, is that there is a lot of um, accumulation of blame that eventually explodes in unproductive uh, fashion. And I think there are maybe two, two kinds of impairment to be talked about, to be distinguished here, one of which could be associated with angry blame. Um, so, you know, impairment is disengagement. I hold a judgment of blame. I decide that you're not the kind of person I can live with. 
But the other language is not holding a judgment, but our common language is holding a grudge. And the kind of opposite idiom of having it out, this kind of hydraulic imagery. Uh, and the holding a grudge, you know, the kind of transfer of the impairment, as I think somebody said earlier, from the blameworthy act to the act of blaming. Whereas it's, it's really that communication uh, and the communication maybe in the first impulse of anger before there has been time to rationalize it heavily and to form judgments about the, you know, sort of essence of the person. Um, but it's, it's really, you're talking about anger pushing to communication, um, which in some cases it does, but in some cases it doesn't. And the impairment seems to have to do with the communication or lack of. Uh. Right, so that's useful. Right. I mean, it also uh, just reminded me that uh, a very fashionable topic at the moment in philosophy is forgiveness, which, of course, is important as a remedy for holding a grudge. Um, but I also think often, well, there's at least a group of people who are interested in forgiveness where the idea is forgive as quickly as possible. It's as if it, it, it is just their way of you know, just trying to get rid of the anger. In, um, they sort of recognize that there's an, a desire to have the anger, but, you know, just just get over it. Uh, where I think, well, you don't have to get over it that quickly. <laughs> 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 um, but about, well, so about these other things, which I just have not given, I haven't studied uh, the all the stuff there is about, you know, how blame successfully or, or unsuccessfully works in the criminal justice system. I think you're actually right in thinking about anger as expressed by the state as being a very dangerous concern. I mean, the restorative justice was a case in which it wasn't the state expressing anger, it was the victims, as I was understanding, who could express anger in a controlled environment to the, and, and in a communicative way that seemed, well, that may have something very good about it. Um, but the idea of the state taking on the authority to blame would be ob objectionable. For that reason, I mean, at least that's my initial thought. So it, it's good for me to recognize the distinction there. Yes. So, uh, I don't know, I'm not a question about the freedom condition. And I guess I was surprised when you said that you thought there had to be some way that the blamed person could have done something else. Because, uh, so, taking the two examples that you gave of the prejudice and the anger issues. Uh, so, I've taken one of your motivations for wanting to stick to angry blame to be the, you know, kind of restorative justice idea, the idea that there's something, there's some uh, benefit to the relationship between, to be gained by the, uh, by the expression of the blame, the anger blame. And I guess I thought that those were, that the two examples you gave, the prejudice and the anger problem, were prime examples where uh, angry, angry blame might have been useful uh, because uh, it seems as though in cases where they know better, they've just made an error, uh, you might think that there's that there's some kind of reminder that you don't necessarily need an, an emotional response. There's a reminder or something like that that might be enough. 
But in cases where there's already uh, uh, a significant resistance in the person to the ideas, that you might need to break through that with some kind of more emotional response. So you might have thought that in order to get, in order to uh, uh, get people to act differently in the future, right? Uh, either either with the anger problem or the prejudice problem, that angry blaming is exactly the right kind of response. But if that's true, then I'm not sure why. I'm not sure what your motivation is for including the, the freedom condition anymore. Okay. Well, I, it wasn't. I didn't have a motivation. It was just a, a view that um, if that if given a certain history and, and background, uh, which leads me to say the person wasn't in a position to appreciate that what it would be. Uh, well, so there were two different cases. The first was the person who, having had an abusive childhood, ha- has uh, you know can't control his 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 violent impulses sometimes. Um, so that was, um, he might know better but can't control it, and the other was a case in which the thought was he doesn't know better. He, he's, he's got a, um, a prejudice that is a result of, of you know, bad background and he hasn't been exposed to it. And I want to handle those differently. In terms of motivation, as I said, it's not. I'm not motivated by anything. I just think, well, when I tell the story in a way that actually leads me to say, given their their history and background, it couldn't have been expected that they do any better. I think blame is inappropriate. That anger, it's angry blame is inappropriate. That just seems, it seems unfair and unjust. They're not responsible for that. that so that's why I say it, because I believe that. Um, in the first case, I don't think being angry would have any effect on you know, a person with anger management problems. Um, you need therapy and Stuff like that, presumably. I, you know, anger. Right? So anger might not be right. But what about indignation or something less, 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 or being upset generally? Well, so uh, so one of the things I want to say is, you may well be right that an emotional reaction of some kind, that is, rather than a come, now this is wrong, we aren't going to do this anymore. That might be a very useful pragmatic fact, and it doesn't have to be an insincere emotion. And so that's that's a good point, I, but not necessarily the emotions that are blaming emotions. I think you could show how upset you are, how you know how. I mean, people. One thing that a Scanlonian would do is express how disappointed you are. <laughs> but but I think really in the case of you know often seeing that you've upset someone a lot can make you can lead you to reflect and think about why did I you know. What's going on there? I didn't expect it. So that is true, but I don't think that has to be blame. And it could even be, as in child, in childbearing cases, there are cases in which we might express blame that we don't really think is deserved. I mean, it's a, you know, you're kind of getting introducing them gradually into the uh, the practices of responsible agency by blaming them. And having, yeah, I mean, it's sort of a developmental thing. Um, but, uh, so, but in the second case, for example, you know, where somebody you know, doesn't even realize what he's doing is offensive or doesn't understand why it is, an emotional rather than a totally calm reaction may be appropriate. I still don't think blame would be justified. Um, but you might express it anyway. I mean, it, uh, but 
it's just a substantive issue. Whether, you know, when can you, when is it appropriate to blame someone in that angry way? And are there conditions of freedom or not? And so it's a huge debate. So I'm Stephen, I'm also a grad student at the Washington Department. So I want to talk about your closet-raising daughter. Because on the one hand, you seem to be saying that angry blame is more needy and robust. But on the other hand, you said a couple of times, and I'm trying to distinguish your group of assailants, that it was sort of more friendly, that it didn't involve certain kinds of things. So it didn't involve an impaired relationship, and it didn't involve, say, a withdrawal from the bill. And that just seems wrong, at least my experience with angry blame also. So it seems like the fact that there needs to be an apology and kissing and making up shows that there is an impaired relationship. It's not a permanently impaired relationship, but it's at least a temporarily impaired one. And unless an apology or kissing and making up occurs, then the relationship will continue to be impaired. So it seems like unless you say something that is impaired, then the necessity for apology seems to go away. And also just in the case as far as withdrawing goodwill, in the closet-raising cases, it means that you wouldn't wish for her to break her leg or scrape her knee. But it seems like that might be because those are particularly inappropriate forms of suffering to associate with closet-raising. But if she were to come home after raiding your shoes and have blisters because the shoes didn't fit her very well, you might think, well, that's exactly what you deserve. Yes, that's true. Right, good, all right. Well, let me first clarify that my point about happy families that blame inside them was it's not that all angry blame is friendly. The point was that impairment of relationships and withdrawal of goodwill was not especially correlated to appropriateness of angry blame. So lots of times your angry blame will involve, I mean, will be about, and perhaps the more serious the wrong or the violation, the more likely that's to happen. But whereas for Scanlon, the heart of what it is to blame and to be blameworthy is that you've impaired a relationship. They have attitudes that impair the relationship. And to me, the heart of, well, right, and so in talking about the cases in which I'm angry at someone that I have a very good relationship with was just to say that's not the heart of it. So actually using, you know, what might be relevant is what is wrong, what does doing wrong to another person have to do with the quality of your relationship? I mean, to me, I mean, the heart of, the contrast I make puts, says, look, for me, blame is essentially connected to our liability to feel anger, resentment, indignation. To blame somebody is to hold them, to think that it would be appropriate to feel one of those feelings. You don't have to actually feel it, but you have to think it's appropriate 
the judgment is to be blameworthy is to be worthy of those negative emotions. Right? Now, then there's the question, what, is, what would someone have to do in order for them to be worthy of one of those negative emotions? Um, I think here, actually, Scanlon and I might even agree that what they, what they have to that is, the, my first thought is, well, what they have to do is they have to do something wrong, right? Or, uh, and I actually didn't think about this until I, until this exchange earlier. You have to violate. <laughs> um, you have to violate a norm of a relationship. Right? Um, that that would be what Scanlon would say, and that actually seems right until someone gives me a reason why I should get that. Your husband is not uh, leaving. He says he's ready to use the norm. Um, right, right. Oh. oh, that is, no, by a norm I mean a, uh, an evaluative, you know, a, a principle, a principle that's jointly accepted, right, yeah, right. No, no, I, I didn't mean it in statistical sense. You know that's coming, right? Uh, yes. So, and your anger, if it really is anger, is almost a show, because you could also opt to be, to consider it well, you don't do that. You know? So there's a sense in which it's kind of a way to control them people. And as we're children, we learn if we have tantrums, and sometimes people say we don't want. Important to say, look, when is someone blameworthy? They have to do something that's wrong, or maybe that's too, uh, that sounds too specific to a kind of universal moral thing, and we want more flexibility there. But I guess the question between, I don't think violating a norm or doing something wrong necessarily impairs a relationship. Again, I mean, I can only go back to what I. Uh, what I said, which is, as compared to what? As compared to a relationship in which everyone always acts with perfect respect and consideration? I mean, that really strikes me as not a world I even want to live in. I mean, it it just doesn't, it's so... Maybe we just have different views about what it is being impaired, right? I mean, it doesn't need to be a bad relationship for it to be impaired for a period of time. There, there's parts of our ways of relating to each other that don't work properly until you fix what you did. Well, no, that's right. That's right. I mean, there are things, it would be better if he didn't do that, right? Uh, that it would be, but the idea, so this is a standard thing, right? And it's, it's bad. He should not say I'm ready to go until he's ready to go, right? <laughs> so, but, I, but, so I, I so we are in agreement. Well, I don't know if we're in agreement. I think he, I think he should do that, for, and that it would be better if he did that. Would our relationship be better if he did that? I, I don't think so. I mean, really, it's not that. I, I really don't feel it is. Uh, it goes into saying we have a good or a bad relationship with that. Yeah. Well, isn't he kind of afraid that you're going to get mad at him again, and then maybe the first twenty minutes of your dinner out to be kind of under the no, I mean, this happens all the time. <laughs> <laughs> it is a very mild event, I have to admit. Okay, I just wanted to one thing that Steve said. Um, I'm wondering, though, 
I'm, I'm dealing more with your feeling that this idea of repairing it is just unnecessary because I feel like if it were the case that we expected every relationship to repair, there would be no room for forgiveness. I think that what you were talking about earlier about forgiveness is forgiveness is letting things go even when they weren't repaired. And that could be part of what makes your relationship so strong. That, you know, if your daughter never, ever, ever apologizes for raiding your closet, it's not like, you know, your relationship for the rest of your lives together, as long as you both live, is worse than it could have been if she had. I mean, you get over things. Right. But, um, I don't know if I want to agree with your, what you said about forgiveness. That I, okay. I mean, there, but that is some forgiveness is a result of people showing remorse and apologizing and all that. But I absolutely agree with you about the idea that even if she doesn't apologize, you know, the relationship goes on and stays close, and this is just something you come to accept as a as a feature of it. And um, again, and I wouldn't think of it as impaired in part because, as a again, as opposed to what there was never a point. It's not as if it's fallen below something that it was before, right? You know, well, we, she used to never raise my closet, and then she started doing it, and so it's been impaired. Um, that never happened. And, and the idea that, well, if she didn't do that, if she hadn't ever done it or if she stopped doing it, uh, we would have a better relationship, a closer relationship. Would we love each other more? Would we be happier together? No, I mean, only during those... Those days when where are my shoes? <laughs> but um, yeah, it, just, it seems to me there's no no special reason to just take that step back to the impairment of a relationship in order to explain what's going on. It's not doing any work. Uh, I'm Justin Darms. I'm another philosopher. Um, so uh, I think I agree with a lot of what you're saying, and, and I like it a lot. Um, there. One thing I don't understand in, in what you said, and I'm not sure what the motivation for it was, um, you said that blame, that you think blaming is either having these angry attitudes or judging them appropriate. And uh, that puzzles me because it seems, uh, I mean, it seems like the idea of drawing the distinction between thinking something blameworthy and actually getting around to blaming it was part of the part of the original setup of the uh, of the way that Scanlon, as I understand from what you just said, mm -hmm. uh, uh, wants to set things up, and that seemed right-headed. It seems like you could fail to blame somebody when you merely think that it would be appropriate to be angry. So we can imagine various cases where you know, uh, uh, you know you're actually angry at me. You're not angry at A. We get the same thing. You say, oh no, no, I blame you both. It's just that I think anger is appropriate at, at, at A, that I'm actually angry at you. I say, no, you don't blame us both. You blame, you're blaming me, and you're not blaming him. You're granting that you could blame him, but you're not doing it. Um, uh, so that's, maybe that's just an intuition about the word blame, but I, but I don't think it's just an intuition about the word blame. I think it also is about what kind of a phenomenon we should think of blaming as being, and what the, how we should think about the relationship between the notion of blameworthiness and the activity of blaming. So I wonder if you could say a bit about why you want to why you want to stick the judgment and let that count as blaming too. Right. Okay. Good. Um, I, I guess there are two reasons. So what I said was, as you said, blaming on my account. You either have these emotions or you judge someone as blameworthy. Um, and then the next sentence said, commonly but not 
necessarily you express these things. And, and so sometimes a person who is not angry expresses the judgment that they're blameworthy in the same way, I mean, that is, if I say, you've got to have a timeout now, <laughs> right? Or, um, you know, I might do punish someone, right? With, for example, without ever feeling the anger or resentment, simply on the basis of the judgment. That does seem to, not to be, in ordinary language terms, a case of blaming. I'm blaming you, and that's why I'm punishing you, because I blame you for, what you, for the wrong behavior. But I didn't feel anger. Right. On the other hand, what seemed essential in the account is that it was that in blaming you, I was judging it appropriate for someone to feel anger. I just didn't feel it. I didn't, and I don't need to feel it. So that was so partly it was just actually, if you think of all the different ways we use blaming, some of the time we use it where they're knowing that the person's angry is irrelevant. But there was another thing I wanted to bring out that. Um, about the relation between blameworthiness and blame that is that is a a, compare, a a contrast between my view and Scanlon. The way Scanlon sets it up, at least it appears, his idea is, all right, first, and it's what you seem to pick up on too, there's the judgment of blameworthiness, which we can have without going on to blame someone. You could judge someone blameworthy and still choose not to blame him. Obviously, my definition would rule that out, and that's uh, perhaps unattractive. But the idea is that blame is something conceptually posterior to the judgment of blameworthiness. That is, you, you judge that a person has done something that shows he's impaired a relationship, and then to actually blame him is to change your attitudes towards him in a way that the impairment makes appropriate. On my account, Blaming is that the angry emotions are the, are the core of the development of the idea. That where the idea is, I mean, it comes naturally to us before we even have articulated or articulable concepts of worthiness of blame or anything. To get angry when we get insulted or hurt, or when someone we love gets insulted or hurt, and then you step back to say now. He doesn't really deserve my anger. Right? So the the anger is kind of the core notion, the blame, and the blameworthiness is something that we've developed as a you know, and we step back and reflect on the justification of that. So that seems to me the that seems the right way of thinking about what you know where these practices come from and how the one aspect relates to the other. But, but now, in our world, when we don't always feel angry, even when we are justified in it, seems to me blame is, you know, doesn't, in fact, require anymore the actual feeling of it, though it often, it often contains that. Um, okay. Yeah. okay, so, so I, I, um, I, I, I like your picture of the dependence relations, and I agree with it. Um, so I, not that I want to say that blameworthiness is some independent thing that you can have standards for without people to blame. But I mean, what I think you have said to try to, to try to motivate the yes, you can blame merely by judging blameworthiness. You pointed out that 
sometimes blaming this kind of social action where we, uh, if you express uh, blame, then you blame someone. Um, uh, or if you say something. Well, if you express it sincerely, I mean, if you express it thinking you're doing it justifiably or something. Right. So I guess the question is is it enough to express the judgment that the thing somebody has just done is anger worthy in order to have blamed them? Or, or does it require more than that in order to explain it? Right? Uh, and, and I, what do you think about the case where somebody complains that uh, that you're, you're, you know, why aren't you blaming him? And, and it doesn't seem like a satisfactory reply. To say, oh, don't worry. I think anger is equally equally appropriate for him as it is for you. Um, uh, that doesn't seem like you're distributing your blame uh, across the two of us, right? Um, no, that's a good case. I, I suppose what I, I'm inclined to do there is to say, I mean, if the person, if, say that the question you really want to ask is, why aren't you as angry at him as you are at me? And you could say it just by using those words. Um, so, it may be, on the one hand, I think if I'm really thinking seriously about, if I'm asking, is this person blameworthy? Which we don't usually do. Usually we blame people without asking self-consciously, do they deserve it? If the assumption that they deserve it is is taken for granted in our reactions, but I don't step back and say, is he blameworthy? If I do step back and ask of someone, is he blameworthy? It seems to me, just speaking, again, this might just be autobiographical, that if I, in reflecting on that, conclude that he is, I really am feeling some, maybe mild, emotional reaction while I'm, I mean, the conclusion that he's blameworthy, the, the reflection on why he is blameworthy, will be a kind of mild form of resentment or indignation or, or something. Um, but it might be very mild. It might be, I just can't get angry at this guy, even though I, you know, he had no excuse, what he did was wrong. And so when someone else says, why aren't you blaming him? Um, the only way I could use my, preserve my language, my linguistic suggestion and, and address that is to say, I just can't get angry at him. But I know he deserves Blame. I think he's blameworthy. Would you say I blame him, but I'm not angry? I don't know. I mean, it, it, I mean, maybe there just is no, no form of language that's going to capture all and only the right, uh, the right cases. Are you glad, Andy? You had a question a moment ago, or was it passed? No, I'll make it awfully brief. Uh, I mean, I don't understand how we can talk about blame blameworthy and expressing angry blame without talking about punishment, without talking about desert, or without speaking of this kind of vengeance. Uh, I don't understand how, what in the world it can mean if we try to uh, insulate or insulate it against those other things. Uh, if, to say somebody's blameworthy means they're deserving of blame, and blame Blame is not a form of punishment. Uh, I don't know what its point is. 
makes the expression of blindness, silent blindness, not matter. But even silent blindness is something that is ready to break out as some form of Well, I, I didn't want to insulate it and suggest that um, it's not connected in a deep way with punishment. I, I maybe haven't thought enough about it. I would think that punishment, vengeance, and retaliation aren't all the same thing. Um, and that blaming, you could blame without an interest in vengeance or even necessarily retaliation. To me, the key thing about blame, well, or a key thing, is that you would like, well, maybe in some cases, what you would like is that the person you're blaming feel the pain of recognizing, uh, recognizing that what she did was, I mean, it was the pain of shame and guilt. Um, and often you do that by, I mean, so if you want a kind of suffering to be, right, and that maybe is punishment, but it's not separable from the recognition of what she, I mean, it's, a very, it's connected to her recognition of what she did wrong or that she did so something wrong. Punishment. Pardon? Now, most punishment or retaliation isn't in the mind of the agent separable from the perception of the person being wrong. It, but it's a very blaming smile of retaliation. Um, right, so that's fine. I mean, I don't, I don't need to actually contradict that. On that note, uh, <laughs> thanks, Susan, and uh, go to the reception. Thank you.